Brothers and sisters, good morning. Would you please remain standing and take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 25. Our text this morning is Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, commonly known as the parable of the talents. I'll be reading from the New King James Version this morning. Hopefully the verses will also be on the screen behind me, but we have had some tech issues. The mic might stop working, the camera might stop working, the PowerPoint may not work well, but the word before us is enduring. This will remain forever. So let's dig into God's word. Matthew 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look. I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. I was afraid. And went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has... More will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a communicating God who speaks to your people. And we have before us your word. We plead with you that you would speak to us this morning. Open our ears to receive the truths of your word. Open our hearts to apply these truths, to love these truths, to love you as we learn more about you as we learn more about these truths. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Please be seated. 
you have your outlines, I'd encourage you to have those nearby as well. We'll refer to them often. We are in Matthew 25. Um, If you've been with us for some time, you know we covered Matthew 24 quite a while ago. So we did Matthew 24, and then we, over the summer, took a break from Matthew. We had five guest pastors come and bless us. I don't know about you, that fed my soul so wonderfully. It was so encouraging to get that great reminder that there are faithful men proclaiming the word all throughout our county. And we had Pastor Brian bless us with four weeks in the book of Jude. Now we're back in Matthew. So we came back last week. We came back into Matthew 25. Let's remind ourselves that the word of God is inspired. The book of Matthew is inspired. That means it's God's word to us through his human instruments that wrote it down in this situation, Matthew. So the word of God is inspired. The chapter divisions and verse divisions are not. Those were added much, much later in history. They were added to help us as ease. So as opposed to saying, find that one place in Matthew that talks about the parable of the talents, you could say, turn to Matthew 25, and we'll read the parable of the talents. So it's an advantage in one sense. It's a disadvantage in the sense that sometimes our minds, when we go from one chapter to the next, our minds start over. Well, that chapter is done, so now we're starting a new train of thought. And in this situation, I disagree with the chapter division because chapter 24 and 25 are one story, one discourse of Jesus. And it's very, very important that we don't lose the train of thought Jesus had at the end of Matthew 24 because it very much continues into Matthew 25. I believe there's a slide with the last three titles of our sermons. So, and if not, stay with me. Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44. Now, the titles of the sermons are not inspired, but we titled that sermon, Prepare for His Return. The next week, finishing up Matthew 24, we titled that sermon, Live Ready for His Return. And last week, as we began Matthew 25, the title was the parable of the ten virgins, because that's what we normally call the section. But Pastor Brian's final point at the end of his notes, we're all supposed to think about as we think about that parable, be wise by being ready. Are you seeing the theme? Be ready, prepare, be ready, prepare, be ready, prepare. This theme is dominating Jesus, his thoughts as he's talking, as he's teaching his disciples. And let's remind ourselves where we are as Jesus is delivering this parable. We're in the Passion Week. We're in the final days of the life of Jesus Christ before he's unjustly crucified on a cross. So he's the good teacher imparting knowledge. He's the good shepherd guiding the disciples to receive that knowledge in a beneficial way to live correctly with the knowledge they've just been given. So here, we're we're getting this teaching, be ready. Be ready for what? Jesus is about to die on a cross for our sins. That's not the end of the story. 
He will rise again the third day. He will walk around on the earth with his disciples and with others. He will fellowship with them. He will communicate with them. He will dine with them. That's not the end of the story. He will ascend into heaven with many, many witnesses watching. He will ascend into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the throne of his father. That's not the end of the story. Jesus will return. So, be ready. And our last parable was very much helping the disciples with this. We need to be ready because we don't know when he's going to return. He didn't give us the calendar. He didn't say, I'm going to return on July 3rd, 2023. He said, I'm going to return. So because you don't know when he's coming back, you need to be ready whenever it might happen. Now, if you're listening and you care about that and you want to apply those words, you raise your hand and you ask a question. How? How do I prepare myself? What does being ready look like? And that's the question that's addressed in this parable. This parable answers the question, how do we prepare? What do I do right here and right now so I can do what I'm supposed to do to be ready for the return of Christ? Before we get into the parable, if you've got your notes, there's three terms we need to understand as we jump into this parable. The first one is the word talent. Because you probably already recognize as we read the text, this use of the word talent in this parable is different than our use of the word talent in the English language in the 21st century. Our, even our young kids in the room would probably know if I said, what does talent mean? And they'd probably be able to say, oh, an ability to do something. I'm talented at running fast. I'm talented at drawing. That's how we use the word talent, and that's an appropriate way for us to use the word talent. In the time of Jesus Christ, as this word has been translated to us in our English Bibles, that word talent that you have in your Bible before you, it literally means weighted. And in this situation, in most of the situations in the Bible, when we see the word talent, it means a specific amount of weight of gold or silver. A huge weight of gold. We're talking a bag full of 100 pounds of gold. And so using the economics of Jesus' day, when I am talking about a talent, when I'm talking about a bag full of gold, we are talking about enough money to take care of your family for five or six or ten years. A significant amount of money for just one talent. Okay, so as we're going through this message, let's remind ourselves when we say talent, we're talking about a lot of money, a bag full of gold. If you have the NIV Bible in front of you, I think it's actually translated NIV, bag of gold, to help with the understanding. You want to know the word servant. We see the word servant all throughout our parable. The word in the Greek is the word doulos, and it's appropriate to say, to translate it servant. It's appropriate to translate that word bondman. It's appropriate to translate that word slave. Most of our English Bibles avoid the word slave, mainly because of America's unfortunate history with slavery. And when we hear that word slave, our minds might leave the text 
and go to events we read about in history that kind of disturb us and frustrate us, and rightfully so. Obviously, the history of slavery throughout our world is horrendous. But there are times in Scripture where interpreting this word slave is beneficial to our understanding of the text because we remind ourselves this was a book written at a time in history. At the time the New Testament was being written, slavery was rampant in the Roman world. By some estimates, one out of every three people were slaves. So it was huge. So we need to understand that if the New Testament is meaning the word slave, there's a reason they use that word because they're talking about slavery. And so whether this word means servant or slave, let's understand these people had no choice but to work for their master. You and I, as American citizens right now, we can say two words that most people in world history couldn't say. We can say, I quit. We can walk away from our job and do something else. Most people throughout the course of human history couldn't do that. These people in this parable had no choice but to work for their master. We need to remember that. The third word we don't even see in our text. It's the word steward. The reason I want us to know the word steward is because this is a parable about faithful stewardship. A steward is a manager of someone else's goods or property or finances. Let's say I am a 20-year-old all-star quarterback. Use your imagination. But I, I, I am top-notch. I just won the Heisman Trophy. I'm about to be drafted. I'm about to sign a contract for hundreds of millions of dollars. But I'm an all-star quarterback. I got the easy route in college. I got my major in postmodern art and basket weaving. So I don't know anything. I'm about to be handed all this money. I don't know what to do with it. I know enough to know, well, I'm going to be drafted by somebody in California. And the taxes for $100 million is $200 million. I don't want to run out of money. I need help, and I don't know what to do. I hire a money manager. And I say to the money manager, I'm clueless. Here's my money. Use it wisely. Pay my bills. Ensure it all comes in. Do that multiplication thing where there's more of it when you're done with it so I can retire and still have some. Go. Now, when that money manager is now in charge of money, that's not his money. He is managing the money. He is stewarding over the money for the sake of the one who has hired him. He's a steward. Are we okay with this idea? So the steward does not have something of his own to manage. It's someone else's, and he manages it for their purposes. As Christians, let me speak personally, when the, inner, when the goal, <laughs> the idea of stewardship was introduced to me, it changed my life. That's not my car, that's God's car. I'm driving that for his purposes. 
That's not my money in the bank. God doesn't say, give me 10% of your money. God says, keep 90% of my money. Changed my life. If we can grasp a little bit this idea we are God's, we are stewards of God's resources, it will empower us for faithfulness like we never imagined. Let's jump into the parable. It's a parable of faithful stewardship, verses 14 and 15 in the introduction. There's a master who's about to go away. He departs his goods to three different servants, three different slaves, whatever word we want to use. One of them gets five talents, five bags of gold. One of the servants gets two bags of gold. One of the talents gets, one of the servants gets one talent, one bag of gold. He distributes them according to their ability. Our American minds are twitching, saying, that's not fair. Because <laughs> in our culture today, everybody gets a trophy. And we treat everybody exactly the same. We are not all exactly the same. And it's wisdom for the master to recognize the giftedness of his servants and to give them expectations, to give them responsibilities according to their giftedness. That's a good and a godly thing. Thinking in my head about different situations. Maybe you don't know the name Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he was a five-talent man. Imagine if every person, all 3,000 people in Charles Spurgeon's church were five-talent people. Every single person in the church can survive on two hours of sleep. Every single person in the church has a photographic memory. Every single person in the church has the ability to understand and impart knowledge at the blink of an eye. And then you come to visit that church there's only one person in need of help at that church. You're coming, you want to be faithful, you want to serve. You're like, there's no holes. There's no gaps. Everybody is superstar. Everybody is the greatest Christian I've ever seen in my life. There's no room for me. I move on. Imagine you're the person. Don't imagine. Think back to your life and how many times were you blessed by someone in the church who wasn't the guy up here with the Bible? You were blessed beyond words by the person who you've talked to three times in your life, but they encouraged you in just the right way, in, at just the right time, and your heart just still overflows at the memory of that. The one talent Christian who was faithful, who recognized your need because God blessed them at just that time and they came to you. This is how the church functions with the five talents and with the two talents and with the one talent and with everybody being faithful as they're supposed to be. God knows what he's doing. 
The master knows what he's doing in this situation. He gives to his servants, letter B. We see that two of the servants are faithful with what they were given, but one is not. Let's remind ourselves we were saved by grace. It's one of the most important truths of Scripture. But we're called to be productive. We don't stop the time we're saved and go, glad that's done. We were given new life. We are new creatures created in Christ Jesus for good works, according to Ephesians 2.10. So Ephesians 2.8 and 9, two of the most powerful verses in Scripture about the fact you were saved by grace. It has nothing to do with you. Very next line, verse 10, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. You are his workmanship. He is working out the beauty of his grace in you and through you as you are productive. So we have to be faithful stewards with what God has given us. In this parable, two were faithful stewards, one was not. Verse 19, let's read that. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. We're reminded of a very important truth. We, each one of us, individually have to give accounts before God. If he would have brought the group together, the three men, and said, okay, men, you started off with eight talents. How'd you do? They add them up and say, sir, we started with eight. We ended up together with 15. That's incredible. That return on investment, any banker would kill for. That's amazing. So if it was a group effort, the group would be praised. But anybody who's ever been a part of a group project in high school or college, you know it's a requirement by state law, at least one person be dead weight. There has to be at least one person on the team that contributes nothing and gets all the rewards of your hard work. And you do the team project, and you stay up late at night, and you invest in it, and you're wishing, Professor, give us individual accounts. That joker doesn't deserve our grade. Look at him individually. That would be fair. But it's a team project, so you all share the grade. When we give an account before God, it's not collectively, it's individually. I don't give an account. When, 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 I'm, when Jesus is talking to me, he's not gonna say, how did Providence Church do? He's not gonna say, how faithful was the Gamble family? He's gonna look at me and say, how faithful were you? Were you faithful with what you were given? Every one of us must individually give our accounts before God. Letter D, the faithful servants are rewarded. We look at verse 20. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. Depending on your verse, so I'm reading New King James. New King James has right in the middle of the faithful 
servant's phrase, the word look. Some translations have the word see. Some translations have the word hear. Not like hear, H-E-A-R, hear, H-E-R-E. Some have, like Old King James has the word behold, which I liked because when I looked up the word, it's the same word John the Baptist uses in John 1.29 when John sees Jesus coming and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The same word. And so when we see the word here in our text, we have to see it with that same excitement based on the word itself, based on the context, uh, excuse me, the uh, grammar in the Greek text here. We have to read that word with the same excitement that we would hear from a toddler who had been working on an artwork all day for the parent. Daddy, look, look, look what I made you. That same excitement. So here comes the, the, mas- the, first, the master brings the first guy. I gave you five. What did you do? Master, you gave me five. Look. Look what I bring you. Look what my faithful activity led to. You gave me five. I give you back ten. The master says, the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. Here, I think we're better blessed if we change the word servant for slave. Well done, good and faithful slave. Because this sentence is supposed to knock the socks off of the disciples. And how many slaves in world history ever heard from their master, well done. How many of you are just dying for your boss to say, not bad, let alone good job, let alone well done, good and faithful servant? You've worked so hard and you just long for that type of feedback from the person you're working so hard for. Here's a slave. What right What responsibility does the master have to give a compliment to the slave at all? It's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be productive. You're supposed to do what you're required. But here, because of the faithfulness of the servant, the master's heart just leans in. Well done. You're so good. You're so faithful. That sentence is supposed to blow away the disciples. So is the next sentence. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Few. You were faithful over a few things. How many of you would consider five bags of gold a few things? I was faithful over a few things. Master, there's nothing few about this. You gave me tons of things. You gave me tons of responsibility. And what we're spo- it's not just few, not to minimize what it was, but it emphasizes what's coming. It's so little compared to the responsibility and joy that awaits you. It's so little compared to the blessings that await you because you've proven yourselves good and faithful. 
First two phrases are supposed to blow the disciples away. Third sentence, guess what? It's supposed to blow the disciples away. Enter into the joy of your Lord. The faithful slave gets to feast like a king. The faithful slave enjoys life as if he was the king. This is part of our union with Christ, our identity with Christ. Let me strongly recommend you listen to the Sunday school message this week. Uh, my dad taught it. It was on adoption. He beautifully touched on the uh, idea of unity, the idea, identity. How much is identity spoken of in our culture today? How important it is as Christians that we understand what identity is, first of all, and what our Christian identity is. So, so listen to that lesson sometime this week and let that assist you in understanding the beauty of us entering into the joy of our Lord. Then the man, so that account is done. Next man gives his account. He only had two to begin with, way less than five. His two turned into four, still pretty impressive, but the four is not close to 10. The four doesn't even equal the five the other guy started with. But he comes with the same excitement. Lord, you gave me two. Look, I bring you four total. Exact same words. Exact same excitement from the master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Sometimes as Christians, we make the fatal mistake of comparing ourselves to others. For some reason, human nature either wants to compare ourselves to the lowest common denominator or the highest common denominator. If I want to approve of myself, I compare myself to the lowest common denominator. I had a bad week, but I'm better than Hitler. <laughs> or if we're wanting to weigh ourselves down, we compare ourselves to the greatest common denominator. I tried to be faithful, but man, look what Spurgeon did. Both are failures on our part. When we are talking about faithfulness, our responsibility is to be faithful with what God has given us. Not be as faithful as somebody else would have been in that situation, because that opportunity wasn't given to them, it was given to you. So if your responsibility at this time is to share the gospel, you don't have to share like Billy Graham, you gotta share like you. Be faithful to the word of God, be faithful to the gifts you were given, and go be faithful. And whether you're a five talent or a two talent, or you're like me, you're a one talent, just be faithful. And as we are faithful, God will say, well done. He won't say, why couldn't you have done that like Billy Graham? He'll say, well done. The, in the text, it's money. So, you know, five turned into 10, two turned into four. It led to really, really good results. This is, we gotta be careful though, when we're looking at this parable, God never requires results of us. Let me say it again. 
God never requires results of us. The results are in God's hands. What God requires of us is faithfulness. God doesn't say you have the gift of evangelism, go share the gospel with 35 people and make sure at least 25 of them are saved. You have the gift of evangelism, be faithful. Maybe it's gonna be like Jonah and you share the gospel for a week and 100,000 people are saved. Maybe you'll be like Jeremiah. Jeremiah shared the gospel for 40 years. Nobody listened to him. That's 40 years of faithfulness. Our responsibility before God, be faithful with what we are to steward over. Our time, our resources, our gifts, our talents, our ability, fill in the blank. We serve the Lord by being faithful. The unfaithful servant now. Verse 20, excuse me, verse 24. He who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid. And went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, now this is the same sentence structure, same word. This guy is actually saying, look, with the same excitement. Look, master, look what I did. There you have what is yours. It's a parable, it's not a real story, but let's play with it. It's totally possible in this scenario that this servant worked just as hard as the other two. You know how hard it would be to hide a bag full of gold and have nobody find it? (laughs) Master, there was temptation for me to spend some of this on my own, I didn't do it. Master, there were others that wanted it and I didn't let them near it. I dug at night so nobody would see. I covered the hole so nobody would know where it was. I watched once a week to make sure nobody was snooping around. I hid the Long John Silver treasure map in a safe spot so nobody else could find it, so nobody else could come near it. I did everything I could to protect what was yours. Master, look, I'm giving you every single ounce. Let me say it a different way. Master, I used all of my effort, all of my thoughts, all of my creativity. I spent every ounce of energy I could into being unfaithful to you. I did everything in my power to hide what you gave me and be an unfaithful steward. Ouch. His Lord saw right through that. Verse 26. You wicked and lazy servant. Those words hurt in English. The Greek helps us. The words rhyme. Poneros, okneros. He want, Jesus wanted these words to be memorable and echo in the disciples' hearts the rest of their lives. If you are unfaithful with what you were given from your master, that makes you wicked and lazy. Mm. 
These parables in chapter 25 hit hard. If you look at chapter 25, you've got your, the Bible that kind of separates by section. You look at how each section ends. Every section ends negative. And every parable in chapter 25 has really, really positive things. Why didn't Jesus end the last parable with the virgins rejoicing with the husbandmen? Why didn't Jesus end this parable with the good ser servants entering into the joy of the Lord? I think it's because Jesus is a really good shepherd and he knows how we think. And for most of us, when you hear good news, you smile and you go, that's great. But then you leave out those doors and those doors have the magical brain erasers. And by the time you're in the car, you forgot what the sermon was about. I'm not picking on anybody, but how, how many of us have heard really, really good, inspiring sermons that didn't even change us the next hour, let alone for our lives? But how many of us have a message from God that just slams us? And fear drives us. Worry drives us. I can't be like that. I can't let my heart go there. I can't let my mind go there. I have to honor the Lord better than that. So, so what is it that, that moves most of us? It's the hard word. For my American history lovers, the sermon that led the force, the Great Awakening, was Jonathan Edwards' sermon titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That was the sermon that went throughout the, the colonies, making people wake up like, wow, we've been denying the Lord, there's no place for that. So he ends hard. He ends, don't be wicked and late. He uses his own words against, you got under letter E, you got those three points. The unfaithful servant, he has his excuses. Uh, you were a hard man. Uh, you reap where you, haven't, where you don't sow. You're unjust. So because of all those things, I couldn't be faithful. That very much echoes Adam in the garden. Why'd you sin? Well, because of the woman you gave me. The woman made me do it, so it's kind of her fault. God, you gave me the woman, so it's kind of your fault. Just shifting blame wherever you can. So we're seeing those excuses. Why? Why were the excuses made? Why did he hide it away? According to his words in verse 25, why was he an unfaithful steward? Because he was afraid. He didn't serve his master out of fear. Fear of what? Maybe it was fear of failure. What if I mess up? What if I do it wrong? Maybe it was fear of disappointment. He already gave me less talents than the other guys. He must think less of me anyway. What if I work my tail off and he doesn't care? What if I can't produce as much as them? He was fear of being judged. What do those other servants think of me? What if I'm not as faithful as them? 
What are they going to say about me? What are they going to think about me? Maybe it's fear of being hurt. What if he's not happy? What if I invest and I work my tail off and nobody even cares? Those examples were not hard for me to come up with because those are the examples. I just gave you the testimony of my life. I can't tell you as I'm reflecting on this passage, I'm reflecting on my life, I'm reflecting on what God has given me It's an embarrassing amount of times that I rejected being faithful because I was afraid of being judged. That I rejected being faithful because I was afraid of failure. That I I ran away from service because I didn't want to be hurt again. And And because I'm a good Christian, I put up the Christian wall. I'm not ready for that kind of responsibility. I'm not gifted enough for that level of responsibility. Somebody else is better for it, and I convince myself it's because of humility, and I look back, and I say, that's not humility, that's false humility anchored in fear. And I have to give an account before God, and my excuses mean nothing on the day of judgment. Not a single thing. And I gotta fess up. God, I ran because of fear. I closed myself to the opportunity you gave me. I had the opportunity to be faithful. I had all the gifts and all the abilities to be faithful because you equipped me. I was too scared to even move. I hid my head in the sand. As much as I'd love to say this is past tense, that'd be a lie. Can't tell you how many times I've tried to escape this office. How many times I've said, uh... I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough, I, f- I failed them, I hurt them, they hurt me. This is real for me. I don't know if it's real for you, this is real for me. This parable has served me for years. I've had to come back to this time and time and time again because I need to be reminded time and time and time again because I am a very fearful person. And I have to be faithful to my God. So how? A couple things. Turn your notes over if you've got them. I've got to reject the fear. The Bible, as the Bible encourages us in the realm of sanctification, if you don't know what sanctification means, watch our Sunday school messages. There's going to be one on sanctification in a few weeks. As I'm growing in faithfulness, I have to evaluate my life. I look for things that don't belong, and I get rid of them with the strength of the Holy Spirit. And I look for things that do belong, that are missing, and I grab them, I bring them, I do everything I can to apply those good things into my life. I don't just bring good things and get rid of nothing. I don't just get rid of bad things and bring in nothing. Both things have to happen in godly sanctification. Ungodly fear needs to go. Has to go we might think the opposite of ungodly fear is courage or the opposite of ungodly fear is bravery. According to the Bible, 
the opposite of ungodly fear is love. Larry told me that a year ago. Remember where I was when Larry said, opposite of fear is love. I said, that's deep. You know your Bible. First John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Look at the example of the difference between fear and love, fear and love. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. 2 Timothy, now this is Paul writing his last letter inspired by God, writing it to his faithful servant Timothy. Timothy struggled with fear. Look at Paul's words to Timothy. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. When fear is trying to control me, when fear is trying to keep me from being faithful, what do I need to do? I need to turn to godly love. We've all seen the video. Some kid falls into a zoo enclosure. So a kid falls into the gorilla enclosure. A kid falls into the tiger enclosure. Now, if I just ask, should you be scared to go in the tiger enclosure, if you're thinking straight, your answer is yes, that'd be terrifying. But if your kid falls in, you might still have the fear, but your love is stronger. As scared as I am as being chewed up by tigers by invading their space, my love for my child casts out the fear and I act in love to help him. When my ungodly fear tries to control me and keep me from being faithful, I need to turn my eyes to those whom I love. God, I'm terrified of failure, but I love you too much to not serve you here. God, I'm terrified of hurting them, but you gave me this opportunity and I have to be faithful to serve them and pray that it doesn't hurt them. And sometimes it will. Justly sometimes, unjustly sometimes. I have to move in faith. So I have to keep my eyes on love. And if you're anything like me, something that can keep you from moving forward is your great memory for your great failures. Last time I did that, I blew it. Why would I do it again? Last time I did that, it left scars. Why would I do it again? Last time I did that, they all told me what a fool I was. Why would I become a fool again and do it again? We need to, as we embrace sanctification, we need to forget the past failures. When I say forget, so you got letter B, forget your past failures, live faithfully for the Lord right now. What do I mean by forget? We can sometimes be our own worst enemy. Use your imagination. Let's imagine you say something really foolish. Let's imagine you say something foolish to your spouse. Oh, bummer. Bad, obviously. Shouldn't have happened, obviously, but it did happen. What do we do now? There's 
biblical ways for moving forward. One thing we do, if it was a sin, we need to apologize to those whom we sinned against. I sin against my spouse, saying something horrible. I want to forget it, but there's an order. It's staring me in the face. I sinned. I confess that sin. I confess it to the person I sinned against. I go to my wife. I'm so sorry. You are created in the image of God. And the way I spoke to you is no way to speak to someone created in the image of God. And you're not just created in the image of God. You're my wife. God blessed you. God blessed me with you. I need to treasure you. I didn't treasure you there. I need to cherish you and uplift you, and that's not what I did. I sinned against you. I apologize. Will you forgive me? I confess my sin before the Lord. I sinned to him too. So I confess my sin to my wife. I confess my sin to the Lord. I don't want it to happen again. I evaluate my own heart. How can I grow in sanctification so that doesn't happen again? I recognize those words only came out of my mouth because they were already in my heart. So there's something in my heart that is wrong. I work out that. I, I beg God, somehow there's bitterness, somehow there's resentment, somehow there's anger. It does not belong. God, help me expel that sin from my heart and replace it with good thoughts about her, loving thoughts about her, thoughts that encourage and cherish her like she deserves. I do that as a way of improving for the future, and then I move on. I don't remind myself of that word every week because it's already been confessed, it's already been forgiven. My job is not to live in my past failures. My job is to improve from those by God's grace and move forward honoring God by his strength, by his wisdom, by his power. That's how sanctification... I can't move forward if I'm living in the past, especially my past failures. I can't improve if my life revolves around the fool I was that one time. I have to move forward by God's grace. I'm expected to move forward by God's grace. Again, watch the lesson on sanctification. Growth is an expectation for those in Christ. Fruitfulness, look at John 15, 16 in your notes. That fruitfulness is expected of those who are found in Christ. So how do I move forward? How do I, how do I seek to be fruitful and faithful? Great question. How can you be faithful right now? We can think about the future, but my question is, how can you be faithful right now? We're about to do the benediction in about 10 minutes. Service is going to end. How can you be faithful after the service? You probably don't know yet. Service isn't over yet. See who God brings your way after service. See who God leads you to talk to after service. Ask him one of those dangerous questions like, how can I pray for you? 
say something even worse. Here's how you can pray for me. And we serve one another and we love one another and we're faithful to the opportunities that God has given us right now. And then tomorrow has a whole new set of right nows, has a whole new set of opportunities for you. Your opportunities are not mine. Your gifts are not mine. Your uh, uh, exposure to certain people is not the same as mine. So your faithfulness tomorrow will look different than my faithfulness to tomorrow. And your faithfulness tomorrow is not compared to mine. You are faithful where God puts you to the best of your ability. And when you blow it, you apologize to where you need, you confess where you need, you seek, what did I do wrong? How can I grow? And you move forward and you're faithful the next day. And we move and we're faithful. I want to be careful. Because if you're like me and you're afraid of, of hurt, you're afraid of failure, you're afraid of disappointment, I want to make sure I didn't mislead you. Because if you are faithful to God, but you're afraid of failure, you're going to fail. Not all the time, but there will be times where you are seeking to serve the Lord and there will be times you fail. And there will be times that others fail you. There'll be times where you are faithful to the Lord and you are judged, justly or otherwise. There'll be times that you serve the Lord, there'll be times that you serve others and you disappoint others or you disappoint yourself or others disappoint you because you're gonna be serving with other imperfect people. You're gonna serve with people that communicate way differently than you. You're gonna serve with people that lead way differently than you would if you were in charge. You're gonna serve with people that just rub you just a little off. They're not like the worst person in the world, but serving with them or poking your eye with a spork are pretty even. <laughs> God, I want to serve you, but not with them. And what if that's your excuse on the day of judgment? God, I was going to get involved in that ministry, but that guy was leading it. I wanted to serve over there, but last time I served with that guy, I got hurt. You gave me the opportunity, you gave me the talents, you gave me the opportunity in my schedule to do that, but last time I tried, I didn't like the results. Christian ministry hurts. Faithfulness to the Lord leaves scars. Won't lie. But the joys overcome the scars. And the little ways you see God's amazing grace in the little things that you do will overwhelm you. The way that person you never talk to encourages you at just the right time, that will sustain you for months on end. 
and encourage you for more faithfulness. And that's nothing compared to the eternal rewards. It's nothing. I'm going to close with a song that served me. I'm not going to sing. Uh, this, it's a song written, it's intended for a high school and college crowd at a camp. So it's like when you're around other people and you're kind of on that spiritual high. Um, it, it's a song that served me really well. Uh, when I was in high school and I was seeing all my friends with their lives planned, I'm going to go to this college uh, and then I'm going to have this job. I'm going to mar marry a woman who's this tall with this color hair. We're going to have this many kids and then I'm going to be mayor. Like, wow, you got all that figured out? Um, and I was flustered. Like, how, how do all my friends know everything that's going to happen to them? I, I can't figure out anything about me. And this idea of this song, the truth of this song really served me well. It, it's the, the chorus has come back in my head many, many times throughout my life as just that encouragement. I, maybe I don't know where I'm going, but I know how to be faithful today. I don't know where my life is leading. I'd like to know. I don't. But I don't need to. God didn't call me to know my future. God called me to be a faithful steward today. The song reads, use me here where I am. I'm not going to pray anymore that you'll change your plans. Despite my fear, I place my life in your hands. The future can wait. Tomorrow might be too late. So Jesus, use me here. That's my prayer. It's my prayer for me. It's my prayer for you. Father, may we pursue the joy of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. And may we do that by being faithful today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good. You are a good Lord. You are not unjust. You are not unkind. You are clear with your expectations for your people and you're gracious enough to equip your people for what you've called them to do. Father, you've made us stewards of your resources and you've called us to faithfulness and that is a terrifying proposition. How grateful we are that as you've called us to be faithful stewards, you give us your Holy Spirit to empower us to be faithful. You've given us your word to tell us what faithfulness looks like. And you've given us a little picture of the joy that awaits us. Father, because we are in Christ, someday we will enter into the joy of our Lord. May we be faithful until he returns. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.